Okay, looks like we are live. Welcome to another ARCS chat. My name is Robin Bauer-Kilgo. I'm the Association Manager for ARCS. Um, I'm just going to do a couple quick technical notes and reminders, and I'm going to throw this over to the ARCS chat team. Um, just so you know, with all of our ARCS chats, as we port these out to YouTube, um, there is a slight delay from when we're doing our talk and when the actual discussion happens. So if you are putting something in the chat, just know there's a little bit of delay in there. If you want to participate in the chat, please be sure to sign in with your Google or YouTube account. That will allow you to play along in the comment field as we go along. And a quick programming note, our ARCS conference is coming up. Um, it's going to be the two weeks in November. I encourage you to go sign up for it as soon as you can. It is $100 for members to get access to over 36 sessions. Um, it's going to be a good time. We actually just posted some of the session descriptions to the website. So if you go to arcsinfo.org, click on the conference, you can actually look at some of the session descriptions we're planning. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and hand this over to our ARCS chat hosts, they are John Robinette and Amanda Robinson, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Robin. Welcome back, everyone. Um, Amanda Robinson here coming to you from the Museum of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg, joined again by John Robinette. Hey, I'm John. I'm an independent collections manager based in New York City area. Bringing in the Northeast representation. I love it. Um, so today we are talking about the future of museum funding post-COVID and beyond. And joining us today is Katie Wilson-Milney, who is a partner at Schindler, Cohen & Hotchman LLP, where she focuses on art law. Katie advises clients in the art, cultural, and creative communities, including art galleries, collectors, artists, and not-for-profit organizations in the art space on transactional matters, such as the purchasing, the sale, lending, and financing of art. Katie also represents art clients in disputes involving representation, collaborations, contracts, copyright, authenticity, title, provenance, and appraisals. Basically, she's a badass. And Katie is also a co-host <laughs> of the Art Law Podcast, which is a monthly podcast discussing topics at the intersection of art and law. And it's highly recommended for everyone to check out. We will, of course, link it in the description box below of the YouTube channel. And we will also um, put it in the description of the podcast, which will come out later this week. So Katie, welcome to ARCS Chat. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Or happy to be back too. Oh, that's right. I apologize. Katie has been with us before and we were just talking about that. So uh, shame on me for having a short-term memory. Uh, actually, one of the cool things we were just talking about is that the chat that Katie was previously on is one of our most highest viewed chats on YouTube. And I would guess maybe also the podcast, maybe you knew John. Yeah. So, uh, podcast. Okay. Flattered. Cool. Very flattered. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, before we get started today, let's maybe talk a little bit, uh, Katie, about how museums raise mon money and their funding operations to give us a little bit of a background about museum funding. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. And I should say to everyone in the audience, you know, I don't work in a museum, I'm a lawyer in private practice. Um, and I'm not a fundraiser. So although I talk about these topics a lot and I think about them and you know, you know, deal with clients when they're thinking about these issues themselves, um, I think expertise in the audience and I would very much welcome, you know, comments, participation, questions, corrections, whatever anyone thinks would be useful. So that said, um, so, you know, museums, for the most part, we're going to leave aside private museums, which are usually private operating foundations, which don't need to raise money because they are funded by their, their founder. 
Um, so for, for most museums that we visit, art museums we're going to focus on today, uh, our nonprofit organizations are public charities, and they raise money from the general public uh, to support their charitable mission. And they're also allowed to earn income um, under certain circumstances without having to pay um, business income tax if that income is related to their charitable purpose. I'm grossly oversimplifying the IRS rules on UBIT, which is unrelated business income tax, but um, uh, every institution's accountant and tax lawyer will have explained this to them. But for the most part, museums, like all public charities, raise money for their operations um, and their mission. And they raise money in um, two different buckets. One is getting donations and grants, and the other is stuff they do that people pay for. We'll call that earned income. On the donations and grants side, which just makes up at least for the big museums, um, you know, most of their income, we're talking about grants from government entities, grants from foundations, private foundations, um, which for the most part only give to public charities and private donations from wealthy donors and you know, individuals or their related entities. And uh, there's a lot of pressure. That's, that's where the big donations come from. There's a lot of pressure to secure uh, big streams of income through those types of uh, donations, especially private donations. Um, the other category is what I said I call earned income. And that could be stuff like ticket sales, um, licensing fees, uh, gift shops. Um, one thing that's actually very lucrative for museums that I was just talking to some people about recently is trips. And we'll, you know, that will segue into uh, the kind of impact of the pandemic on some fundraising because a lot of this wasn't possible. But museums do trips for donors and members where they actually make a lot of money. They have events, concerts. So things like that, they also bring in, um, bring in income. You know, historically speaking, at least for museums of a certain size, it's very difficult to make a meaningful amount of money on ticket sales or the gift shop. You know, the, 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 the big money coming in is really through donations and grants. Um, and so that's where a lot of the fundraising focus is. It's not that that earned income isn't important. And I actually think for smaller institutions, it's even more important. Um, and they, they make a bigger percentage of their budget through through maybe ticket sales and gift shops. But but the pressure really typically on the bigger institutions is on um, is on fundraising through grants and donations. Right. I'm thinking back on some of the things like the operating expenses of current organizations and past organizations I've been a part of. And depending on the size of the institution, like how much we called it like your gate. We were very dependent upon our gate earnings mm -hmm. um, at certain institutions given, given their size. And a lot of what made up our operating budget was earned income from events. Weddings especially was a very big thing, at least here in Florida. So that's a very popular opportunity. But speaking of that, um, what are some of the challenges that you see institutions facing when it comes to fundraising, especially as a nonprofit? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think this also maybe it's helpful to think about in two parts. One is what were kind of the, the pre-existing challenges before, let's say, the last two years, long-term challenges for museum fundraising. And then what are we seeing? It's kind of raising this 
pro, you know, profile of these topics in the last couple of years and what's kind of exacerbated the, the already difficult landscape. So I think, again, different size institutions have very different issues with fundraising. And, you know, in a very long-term sense, we've seen across the country, um, especially in non-coastal museums and smaller museums generally, that the fundraising landscape has changed in the last, let's say, 100 years. Um, there's been deindustrialization in places where there was a lot of money for arts and culture. Those families have either moved away or they no longer have that kind of wealth, you know, or the seed funding they gave to an institution ran out. Um, we see have depopulating parts of the country, you know, where it's harder to get people interested in going to, to museums and also harder to get people to donate. So those are some long-term trends we're seeing in different parts of the country. And then kind of persistent challenges, um, you know, relate to how museums can bring money in and what restrictions may be on the money. So let's say you know, for bigger institutions that are really going after the same handful of very, very wealthy donors and foundations, right? There's, the pool is small. It's the same people that every, you know, big museum is kind of going to for money. Um, how do you compete and, and get that person slash foundation to give you money rather than your, you know, sister you know, friendly but competitive organization, you know, across the city or, you know, in a neighboring city. And that has presented a lot of challenges because a lot of the efforts of fundraising then have gone to wooing very wealthy people, um, you know, which can look like, you know, a lot of attention of the museum is being placed on those donors rather than on the constituents that the museum serves. And I think we're seeing more conversations about that now. And those kind of wealthy donors, if they're going to give their tens of millions of dollars to one institution versus another, often want to be recognized. So there's a competition for how those donors can be recognized. Is their name going to be on something? You know, um, is there going to be a new wing built in their name, a new fountain, an endowed position? And uh, those are not typically operating expenses. Hard to put your name on an operating expense, right? Like, oh, I, I paid for the janitors this year, or I'm paying for the electricity. That's just not really a sexy thing for donors. So museums have always, and I think increasingly so, had difficulty fundraising for their basic operating expenses. That's stuff like janitors, electricity, storage for the art, staff, salaries, you know, I mean, just like anything that any any business would have to pay for that has a plant, you know, physical plant. And what, you know, donors who are giving the biggest amounts often want to do is they want to give to a new project or a new exhibition. And so that can be very helpful because those are sexy things and they can bring in um, more donations, interest and, and visitors, but there are also cost centers. So instead of kind of paying down the existing financial needs of an institution, we see donors kind of wanting to give to something new, a new cost center, which doesn't really offset the original cost at all. So that's always a challenge. Just how do we raise money for operating expenses? And I think Amanda, as you said, you know, often earned income can be goes into a lot of the operating expenses, but in many cases that's not enough. And so it's a real challenge. And I think we're seeing that conversation 
um, really peak, you know, in the last couple of years about just the reality of needing money for operating expenses. Mm. Oh, and then COVID, I guess. Yeah, go ahead, John. Then we can talk about COVID when... Yeah, no. I, I just wanted to ask right quick what are, what are the what are the incentives for someone to give? I is it just tax incentives? Yeah, I think it's I think it's um, again grossly oversimplifying, but two things. One is yes, we live in a um, a tax incentivized philanthropic system, and so um, there are serious financial benefits to giving to charities, both during a donor's lifetime and certainly at death, to avoid a state tax the state tax burden, either in a, at a state level or a federal level. Um, and it's also reputational. I mean, I don't like the, I don't personally use the washing terms very often, but, you know, there is a sense that, um, that wealthy people kind of, no matter how they get their money, are using their affiliation with charitable entities to improve their reputation and make that money look like you know, it's from a good place. I think there's a very legitimate argument that um, if someone has made money, you know, in an undesirable way, what better place for that to go than a place where they don't control it anymore and it's in the public interest? Like, that that seems like a great appropriation of funds from someone who may not be making the best decisions. But um, it certainly is is a is true that there are reputational benefits for donors to be affiliated with um, institutions like museums, and that plays into them wanting um, that public recognition, those sort of naming naming affiliations. For sure. Actually, John, I think you may have posed this in the chat. Have we gotten some feedback from listeners, or I would even encourage listeners to um, let us know what the challenges are that they've been facing at their institution, not necessarily the past 18 months, but in general when it comes to fundraising. Um, have we gotten any feedback from that yet, John? Not yet, uh, but uh, did have one comment uh, from someone asking if loan fees were a significant source of of uh, income. Um, how has it, uh, do you charge a loan fee down there at your museum? Maybe. No, I don't. And I, and I have to say most of the museums I've worked for have been affiliated with the university in some sense. So yeah. they're even less inclined to do that because um, the missions of not the mission of not only our institution but our parent organization is for education, and we wouldn't want to put a financial hindrance on that. Yeah, I have always wondered that in terms of earning income. I have found that like traveling exhibitions seem to be a way that institutions have tried to earn an income. Yeah. Um, or offset costs like operating costs or, or what have you. I haven't really heard about loans being something that have yeah. really done that outside of just kind of covering the costs of facilitating. Yeah, exactly. And my hunch is that it doesn't bring in that much income unless it's just a huge amount of objects, unless it's a, a massive scale in, in, um, exhibition. So Yeah. Well, and loans in general are very pricey to begin with, yeah. depending on where you're shipping them to. Yeah. And it's interesting. I don't know the answer to that question, but if it were a source of income, obviously, with most institutions in the country being shut down for a year plus in the last yeah. two years, you know, that would have curtailed that source of income too, like so many others. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that the challenges that we just touched upon are exacerbated, you know, and also transformed 
by the pandemic. And I think we had two things happening once in the last couple of years. We had um, a pandemic, a global health crisis, and we also have the real increased social and cultural demands on museums to, to do a lot more than display art, um, to think about social justice, think about their constituency in different, um, you know, more, you know, race and gender conscious ways. And, um, and those, those pressures do collide, they intersect. You know, I, we, we know that during COVID, you know, museums shut down, right? So there was no revenue from ticket sales. There were no trips. There were no events. There were no concerts. You know, there was none of that. No, no one was going to the gift shop, you know? And in general, people probably weren't buying from the gift shop online, right? Because they were buying gym equipment or whatever they were buying for their home. So all of that sort of earned income that was, you know, supporting operating expenses at, at least a little bit was kind of wiped out. We also saw huge staff reductions. So we, you know, and 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 really just massive revenue loss across the board in the art nonprofit sector, which um, you know, the um, American Alliance for the Arts, I believe is the name of the organization, has done great research on, has a bunch of statistics on their website. Um, but you know, it was just a, a colossal impact on an industry that's already struggling to raise funds for its operation. So, you know, these are, these are public charities, but they are not public entities in the way that arts institutions are in Europe, in continental Europe. And so there's no, there's no government fallback. Luckily, our government provided two main grant opportunities for uh, that museums could qualify for, like many other small businesses. One was the PPP loans that everyone knows about, pay, paycheck uh, protection and um, something called the Shuttered Venue Operating Grant, which some museums qualify for. Um, and those were ways to get government assistance that I think actually could be very meaningful um, for smaller organizations and many nonprofits took advantage of them. But, you know, this is a, this is a very difficult time and a lot of fundraising, like we said, even at the grant and donation level, which again is what museum fundraisers really target, was is around, you know, schmoozing and like events for wealthy people, making them feel important. And, you know, and that wasn't happening. You weren't having dinners, you weren't, you know, having private walkthroughs, you weren't doing any of that personal stuff, that personal touch that I think fundraisers really, really rely on. And at the same time, you know, we're seeing we, we started to see much more intensely in the last few years and, and still demands on museums to spend money differently and to spend more money, more money on salaries for operating expenses, more money on programming for communities and general kind of diversity, equity, inclusion type activities. And that's not free. You know, it's expensive. Museums are not places that typically pay high salaries for regular staff members. And um, it's not like they have a repository of, of money that they're, you know, could be paying higher salaries. They use it for other things, namely the storage and care of an art collection, which is hugely expensive, right? I mean, if you think about a donation of art, um, which is a wonderful thing, right? 
it's, a, it's actually quite a burden on a museum. And, and museums are very s selective now about what art they accept as donations because it's really an invitation to, to pay for the care of that art for perpetuity. So it's just like a cost center. And if you think about the amount of art that you don't see on the wall that has to be in climate controlled storage, inventoried on a regular basis, it's, um, it's astronomical and those expenses didn't go away with the pandemic. So, um, you know, there's, there's some, both some tension, there's some challenges related to our, the global situation and some tensions and what uh, museums are being asked to do and want to do and uh, how their uh, budgets and fundraising are currently structured. You know, I, um, I, I just have one quick comment. Uh, I was right before this, I was, uh, uh, watching a webinar about um, traveling exhibitions and Max Anderson, who used to be the director of the Whitney and also I think Dallas mm -hmm. Museum of Art yeah. um, was, was talking about how uh, art museums versus other kinds of museums were affected differently because ticket sales, gate receipts are much less of a factor for art museums than they are for say a science museum, which could, mm -hmm. you know, you know, it could depend, you know, maybe 70% of its uh, income, earned income comes from gate receipts. And um, so as a result, the pandemic actually hasn't hurt art museums as much because, you know, people weren't going uh, as, as it affected um, other kinds of museums, especially smaller ones. So, but, you know, again, that just puts the emphasis back on, you know, finding donors. So Yeah. And let's not forget that, um, you know, most art museums are small, operating small, not in New York City, not in LA, not in San Francisco. You know, they're operating on a hair thin margin all the time. I, I think it's fair to say that those are the types of institutions most affected, most vulnerable to the pandemic. And I think there, there was in that type of institution a tremendous amount of vulnerability. Either places did close or there you know, was real fear at a lot of those institutions that they would close for good. Um, you know, we have to remember that places like the Met and MoMA, you know, I don't know, the PMA, you know, a handful of institutions have gigantic endowments. They're not allowed to spend those endowments, but they are allowed to spend a certain uh, portion of the income on those endowments. And those rules were even uh, loosened at least uh, by the AMD, which is sort of the ethical overlay that art museums follow for many, many things, including including spending um, and fundraising. And, um, you know, they can survive, right? They will survive. The Met was not going to shut down. Was the Met in a dire situation? For sure. Very difficult. That's why we see these institutions you know, in the headlines about deaccessioning in such a controversial way, like, because you know, even the big institutions need to find money um, in different ways. And, and deaccessioning, you know, has always been a temptation, always been a fraught area in which, you know, institutions uh, think about how they can raise money. Um, you know, if not for operating expenses, what we call direct care of collections. So it's not that they didn't face pressures, but it's a very different situation with very you know, small, small arts institutions. That was the one thing, or that has been something that I know I've struggled with, with the AMD, AMD resolution. Um, because if you look at the, 
um, I don't know, the qualifications of it or, or of the fine print, if you will, unless you are a very large organization that is deaccessioning something that's going to fetch quite a price at auction, I, I don't see how the small bit of interest that you could earn off of that or whatever the um, interest could be would be enough necessarily to pay for any kind of bill of an organization. So I, yeah. I always felt very, uh, it was just interesting the way that information was rolled out through um, news organizations or other things, but to really look into the weeds of it, it's actually really challenging still. It's not like we were told to go out and sell everything and you know, pay your lighting bills and pay your staff. Um, we're still pretty restricted as an as arts, arts organizations specifically um, when it comes to like direct care and the use of those funds. And for this two year pit window, maybe not. And maybe, Right. Other organizations have always been very transparent about their direct care process, and they've just always been participating in that, and it doesn't matter. Um, but it's interesting because you think about, we talked about some of the challenges that have arose specifically with COVID. And I know with fundraising at my current organization, we had actually developed a new position in development all based on corporate fundraising. And that just became non-existent once the pandemic hit. So mm -hmm. organizations that may have otherwise been supporting the arts or supporting nonprofits, you know, the places they wanted to support were healthcare and other organizations that were directly fighting to impact, uh, to make an impact on the pandemic. And so like the allocation of funds that we may have expected to receive um, culturally as a, in the US were being uh, pushed to other organizations that were considered more dire. Yeah, actually, I'm so glad you raised that. It's been the many, many, the potpourri of things that come up with this topic. Um, I'm going to forget many. And that's really an important one is that um, I think we saw both uh, co corporate donors, we'll just call, you know, these private donors, whether they're corporate or they're individuals, um, you know, get a little nervous about funding as usual. Um, what the pandemic was going to mean for them and their. Did I just freeze guys? One quick second. Yeah. Yeah. But you're back now. Sorry. I, I froze. Didn't I? Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't know where I was, but um, <laughs> I was reacting to Amanda's excellent point, which, um, was that, a, and forgive me if I'm repeating some, some part of what people heard, was that, you know, private donors, corporate donors, or individuals, um, family offices, you know, became nervous, like we all did during the pandemic, about what was going to happen to their own financial well-being, which is a ridiculous thing to say, because I'm sure that, I mean, we know they'll be fine, but their sort of financial positioning in terms of how much giving they wanted to do. Um, we lived in an uncertain economic time. Um, I think that, for the most part, is probably not playing out, um, but I think it did give pause to, to corporate donors and individuals about how they wanted to spend their money. The other thing that happened is that there was a lot of increased pressure and, and desire around the election, around you know Donald Trump's entire presidency and the end of it, around the racial justice reckoning that is, you know, still at the forefront of, you know, our socio-cultural political landscape. 
um, to give money to organizations that had to do with those pressing social political issues. And art museums, you know, are not that. And so I think there's also was maybe um, kind of a redirection of giving um, to, to more political social justice causes from wealthy liberal donors um, that museums, you know, have to deal with. And one way they're trying to deal with that is by acting like they're social justice actors themselves. I, you know, everyone has their own opinion about whether museums are um, sort of the proper venue for those types of issues, whether they can do that well, whether it's their job, or, you know, or whether that's better left to other organizations or whether every single organization that can should be engaging with those issues. So, um, but I think both of those things, exactly what you're saying, Amanda, were, you know, kind of dried up certain sources of funding, apart from the fact that, you know, there were no ticket sales or no gift shop purchases or stuff like that. So, John, I don't want to neglect our chat. Any feedback we're getting there that we should address? No, it's all pretty quiet. That must mean Katie's answering all the questions and anticipating <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> comments. Uh, I do have a question. Has um, has any legislation changed as a result of the pandemic that might encourage uh, people to donate more? That's a good question. I'm I'm not a tax lawyer, but I am not aware of any. And I I, I think what you mean is are there um, changes in sort of how in the Internal Revenue Code that would right. incentivize further or de incentivize charitable giving. Um, there are always proposals to, you know, change around the edges, the incentives for charitable giving, both in terms of how much someone can donate compared to their, you know, income or, you know, for a certain tax benefit. You can give as much as you want, obviously. So we're just talking about thresholds for giving that tax advantage you in different ways. Um, and, you know, there were some um, slight changes in in the recent tax legislation, but no, I, around the pandemic, I don't know that, I don't know that the IRS, you know, was able to, or did further incentivize giving. Um, I think one thing, you know, as Amanda was saying, just to take a step back about what the AMD did, the AMD is not a legal organization. There's nothing legal about their guidelines. Institutions do not have to follow them. I will say, as I've said in many of these talks that um, in New York state, we do have regulations that govern most um, museums founded after the 1880s that do place restrictions on both deaccessioning um, and the use of funds from deaccessioning. And that is in the statute, that is statutory law. So in New York, we do have um, legal restrictions on, on, many things about how public, you know, charities operate that are governed by the uh, New York state regions. But one of them is deaccessioning. So, but in general, you know, museums, art museums follow the AMD guidelines because they see some benefit of being affiliated with that organization, even if they don't have to. I wonder if that is going to change. There's just been more and more dissatisfaction and frustration with the restriction that AMD has always had, which is that you can, uh, if you properly deaccession, and that's a whole different question, there's no one's really debating that. There's some different reasons that it's appropriate to deaccessional work, like it's 
damaged, it's duplicative, things like that. How do you use the proceeds? And the AMD rule has always been that you can only use the proceeds to acquire new work for the collection. No, no operating expenses, nothing to care for the collection. You can only buy new work. So that's not really helpful. It's not really a fundraising factor at all. Um, it can be helpful if a new important work, let's say, comes up at auction or in a private sale in the museum, thinks it's critical for its collection. Absolutely. Deaccessioning is appropriate and um, purchasing a new work for the collection is appropriate. But it gave institutions very little leeway to pay for things like curatorial time, storage, um, conservation, things like that, which the broader museum community, such as the American Alliance Museums, always permitted. They always um, also have restrictions on deaccessioning and guidelines, but have for longer. And now, um, you know, general tax guidance is the same that you can use the proceeds from deaccessioning for uh, to buy new works, but also for the direct care of collections. It was really just in the art museum world that this rule was so strict. And I think we see with the pandemic, just this increased financial pressure on these kinds of institutions and you know even more frustration at that kind of strict rule. So AMD reacts to that, not by changing its rule, not even by changing its rules temporarily, but by saying that for two years, they will not sanction you if you violate the rules. And it's, it's a very kind of nuanced approach because there is a difference. They, did, they, you know, they didn't say it's okay to do this. They just basically said, we'll look the other way if you use the funds from deaccessioning objects in your collection to pay for the direct care of a collection. And you, have, you must have a collection management policy and all that stuff. But we'll look the other way for a couple of years. Um, you know, so it's, it, AMD did not really change. It did not open itself up to a discussion on this. And I think that's angered a lot of museum directors and institutions, especially younger, more, we'll say, maybe more progressive or you just less traditional or less, just a younger mindset of museum director just doesn't get that. They don't, that doesn't make sense to them. You know, they have a trove of objects that are not on display. You know, they're largely in storage, just sucking up money for storage and care expenses. And they have all these needs for engagement with the community, for paying better salaries, for, you know, like we've discussed diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. They have all of these financial needs and they have this hugely valuable probe of objects that aren't on display. And it, I think there's public pressure um, because if you're not in the uh, art world, that seems ridiculous. Like, you know, I've heard many people say, just sell a painting, of course, then you'll get all the money you need. We have an art world that's the hottest it's ever been. You know, this art is the most valuable it's ever been. So it seems like a very easy way out. Um, you know, the danger is that it is an easy way out. And once these objects are gone from the public view, they are gone. They're, they're in private hands. They will likely not come back, or at least not for decades. And um, if these institutions hold these objects in a kind of public trust, then selling them because you couldn't otherwise figure out your budget feels like a violation of those tr this, that trust. That That's the tension. But I think many, many... Um, 
museum directors are now questioning why that rule has to be so absolute in a time where there's so many other pressing um, financial concerns. And so I, uh, we will see whether either AMD yields or whether AMD becomes less relevant. All great points. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Um, and we, we kind of touched on a few things a little bit earlier when we were talking about um, donor support and, and other types of support and some of the uh, social unrest that's been bubbling to the surface in the U.S. over the last few years. So it's a nice segue to talk a little bit about some of the pressures that institutions um, are being impacted by, especially as of late, with regards to some of the fundraising that they've received by certain types of donors um, mm. and kind of the the cult the the shift that the public is asking museums or institutions to take uh, in response to those types of gifts. Yeah, we'll call this the Sackler problem, maybe. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's totally another thing that's happening right now. And it, it is very much a fundraising issue and um, also a social reputational issue. Um, I think as we talk, I'm realizing that there's this collision of all those issues on so many of these topics. Um, so for a long time, you know, museums took money or from whatever wealthy donors wanted to give to them. And in some ways, like I said, that makes like kind of total logical sense, right? Once the money's in the charitable bubble, it's not benefiting the Sacklers. I mean, technically we'll talk about the reputational um, aspect of that in a moment it's it's you know it's at whatever institution it's at and they can use it for good so great we just took money from you know it's like a Robin Hood issue we just took money and we're giving it to a good cause and what could be the problem I think we've seen a change culturally and politically around um, just how we're how we react to people, families who've done bad things and how that um, can be kind of an absolute bar on their participation in society. And, um, and one way we're, we're seeing that is just this concern that wealthy donors, let's say like the Sacklers are using money potentially that they got from opioid sales, the marketing of opioids um, that was of tremendous harm to many people in our country. And then they use those profits uh, to give to an art museum and their name goes on the wall and they look like wonderful people. That just feels icky. And I think it um, feels icky to a lot of us who aren't you know, necessarily as absolute, you know, aren't outside a museum protesting about you know, every board member that's maybe ever done anything questionable because to be honest, that strategy would lead to no wealthy people on any board, probably. But it just feels kind of icky. So I think that especially with the Sacklers, um, in the last few years, as everything's become, you know, much more intensely political in certain parts of uh, the country from, from the left, there's more of a demand to pay attention to whose names you're affiliating with as an institution. And so that is leading museums to think about donations in more reputational ways. Um, and that is kind of in direct tension with the reputational benefit that those donors want. Like we already said, 
museums are competing for a small handful of the same people to give a ton of money. What do those people decide to give to one institution or another? Because they get recognition and they feel nice and important and their name gets on something. And now museums are feeling like, oh no, I have to be so careful about what name I put on something because I don't know in 10 years what's going to be on, what's this person going to do? What's going to be uncovered about what they've done in the past or what how they raised their money? I don't know. And so I do think we're seeing a big shift um, in terms of diligence and discretion about accepting major donations and from who, in terms of diligencing the donor, any reputational concerns that may already exist, and also putting in more trying to, if you have the power to do that as an institution, more caveats and restrictions in the donation agreements, which or naming agreements, which might say something like, this naming right lasts for 10 years, right? Not forever. Or this naming lasts, right lasts for 20 years, but if X, Y, Z happens, we have a right to take your name off and you can't do anything about it. And those could be really general things like bring the museum into reputational harm or something like that. So we're, we're absolutely seeing more hesitancy and also more, I think, um, diligence on the governance level and um, protections on the contractual level in terms of giving by people because of these reputational concerns. I wonder, do you think that because of um, how some of those recent donations or historical affiliations have gone down over the last few years, do you, do you see an incentive for donors to change their approach? I mean, if the, if the hmm. incentive on their end is the name recognition or the, you know, positive impact and they want to have on their community or um, on their own selves or their own organizations, if their name becomes the problem, will they change their approach? And if they do, is there still a benefit to them? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think um, from the museum side, you want every donation to be anonymous, right? Like that would be terrific. No one's going to get angry, come protest outside your museum. Like mm -hmm. it'd be great. It's just, and, and I'm, honestly, every donation should be anonymous because if you're, if your goal, you know, as a philanthropist is to really benefit the recipient of your funds, then your name doesn't need to be attached to that. Like it's, it's not about you. So in an ideal world, absolutely all donations would be fairly, would be anonymous or close to anonymous because, um, they just make all these issues go away. I think what you're asking is really interesting. So to me, it's obvious that from a museum perspective, they want, they, of course they want that. That saves them this whole PR headache. Um, and, you know, they don't need to worry as much about all those caveats. I think from the donor perspective, I don't know. I, I, it, it would be interesting if more donors now are amenable to anonymous donations or as many people feared, they're not giving anymore. Because what they want is a public affiliation and museums are not as likely to give it. And if they can't get that, they're going to spend their money somewhere else. Um, so that's the fear that they just, they'd lose interest because that's the, that's a carrot for a donor. Mm -hmm. um, but it may be that there are enough tax benefits or they really care about the arts that there is a shift towards giving anonymously just to avoid that embarrassment or because the museum asks them to, you know, and there's sort of a mutual understanding that this is the direction things are going. Um, 
So I think that's a really great question. And I, I would be interested to see over time from the donor perspective, if, if donors, you know, are just as willing to give and understand that giving anonymously is anonymously is um, beneficial in some ways. And, or if they kind of, that's part of why we're seeing fewer, starting to see um, maybe fewer big donations from, from individuals, at least not from foundations. Right. So I do think what we will, what would be impacted is, you know, if you go to the Met, um, you know, you, when you see a fountain or a wing, it has a name on it. And that's not just like a gift to the donor. That donor paid for that wing or that fountain um, because it was going to be called their name. So we may just see fewer things like that. We may see fewer fountains that actually no one really needed anyway called, you know, named after someone or there may just be fewer projects like that, um, which I don't know if that would be particularly bad. Hmm. Uh, a quick comment here. The, uh, when we, right after the AAMD resolution came, uh, came out last year in late April, we uh, had um, then board president Brent Benjamin uh, on, and we had a live chat with him mm -hmm. about this. And someone from our, our listen, one of the listeners proposed, you know, naming or public acknowledgement of donors that would give money to museums, not for works, not for wings, nor capital mm -hmm. projects, but for, you know, uh, whether it's direct care or just salaries or collections care, yeah. um, uh, paying staff and just making that public acknowledgement. He, he actually thought it was a really good idea. Um, but that's really what we need. We, we need money uh we need an endowed head registrar position <laughs> what well, we need yeah. uh, we need we need uh yeah money that's not going to go that's going to be tied to just acquisitions or things like that but you know for all of these other services that that come in that are not you know that are hard it's hard to put your name on on uh you know the the painting racks <laughs> you know it's uh yeah. but that's what you need right you need you know money to pay that hvac bill because you know what that is a huge expense so absolutely i mean that's the age-old struggle it's just yeah. harder now but it's always been the struggle is how do you get money for operating expenses yeah and it's intention right because your operating expenses go up every time there's a new special project so you're we're seeing like and we all see this at the at big museums. It's like the beautiful, cool new traveling exhibitions, or the you know the just the flashy thing, and um, and that's wonderful. But like the old master's wing, or you know the antiquities wing, like that's still so important, and that's still there and needs to be cared for. And kind of like there really is this attention diversion to these new kind of flashy not necessarily as traditionally fine art related um, projects. So I, and I think museums, that's where they can raise money the, the easiest. So they're really being pulled in that direction. Um, even though what they need the money for is the stuff John talked about, right? And the traditional collections. So now how do we get, how do we get the biggest donors to give to operations and not care at all that, you know, won't be as sexy. It won't, you know, won't, they won't be able to say that they funded the next fashion exhibit or, you know, whatever it is, um, is it, is a challenge. Yeah. But if the idea of kind of giving them special recognition, um, maybe beating them at their own game is a really good one, you know, as long as 
there's no reputational crisis. That's true. I'm still holding out hope that I can convince our development department to uh, get someone to fundraise the costs for manage, for maintaining and sustaining our collections management system. Someone's got to be tech interested out there that wants to pay the money for that. Uh, I think but as, as you said, it might be harder to raise money for. And you know that's so critical, right? Because if smaller museums or any museum, but I think it's just probably more challenging for medium smaller museums aren't keeping track of their collections. You know, what a what a sad thing, both for scholarship and for the longevity of the institution. You know, I mean, that kind of archiving and digitizing is, is how museums are gonna transition into a new era, you know, a new era that's existed for like 30 years, but we're still transitioning into. Um, mm -hmm. I have seen I don't have an expertise on this. I've just noticed that some museums have gotten grants to do that work. You know, they get a grant to digitize. And, um, you know, let's Mellon and Ford. And, you know, th there were some emergency grant making around the pandemic, not related to collections uh, management necessarily, but just maybe we'll see the kind of foundation step in to fund these kind of more basic needs uh, continue. Because I do think, we saw some the major foundations really step up to the extent they could um, during the pandemic. But yeah, very important. How's the chat living over there, John? Still pretty quiet, but um, yeah, you're doing great. Well, it might be a good uh, point for us to talk a little bit about the future of fundraising, which you just touched on a little bit, Katie, um, and what some opportunities might be post COVID in general in the US, how can institutions possibly move forward successfully in the coming year? John had mentioned, um, and then I read a little bit more about this, that you know, insti arts institutions, like apparently everyone else in the art world is getting, you know, looking at NFTs. I don't know um, really how much American art museums are doing that. And uh, we could do a whole, you know, whole talk just on NFTs, which, you know, are um, a digital asset. You know, they're a token of, of digits. They are not an artwork. They're not even a digital artwork. They likely point to a digital artwork somewhere on the website that literally anyone can look at or download, but you don't have any rights to that. All you own is the token. So it's it's kind of a fiction. Um, it's, it's a new asset affiliated with an artwork, but it is not an artwork itself. So it, I find it hard to understand the appeal of, and I'm skeptical of the longevity of, of NFTs, but, um, you know, and, and NFTs connote nothing for copyright. So if you don't have the copyright to something, owning an NFT doesn't give you any rights to use the image more than any other person on earth. I guess some museums, and maybe John can talk a little bit more about what he's been reading, you know, are doing this because people think NFTs are cool. and while people think NFTs are cool, even if I don't understand the value of them, like why not, you know, create a token affiliated with a work that's in the public domain and sell 10 of them or, you know, one of them. And if someone wants to spend a lot of money, terrific, you know? So um, I don't know a lot about that, but I am interested in whether museums do that. Do mm. you have any comments you want to add there, John? No, I, I think it's 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 uh it's it's a way for um 
it, it, it sounds like it's sort of a, a crowdsourcing of uh, of a of a specific project that uh, that museums are doing. So, like, it was the Whitworth that's in uh, the Greater Manchester area in the UK that mm-hmm. uh, that that very publicly, you know, just did this and used the proceeds uh, of the NFT sales for uh, community related activities or events um and it was uh i i don't i don't know how successful it was it's it's ongoing but um but regardless i think you know and there are other other people doing it uh as well so i think it's it'll be interesting to see how it how it how it unfolds and you know still developing but i i think it you know maybe it gives the public uh, some skin in the game uh regarding you know what they see and what they're willing to you know because um, you know, they're actively contributing to putting it on. So, I mean, I guess they do anyway if they go through the door and pay, but, um, but it's, it's not tied, you know, specifically to an exhibition the way the NFT is. So I think that could be an interesting thing. Um, and, uh, you know, usually I think it's been like the Uffizi did something, but they, they yeah. did an NFT yeah. of, uh, of an actual work. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now is that when people do it, that that's problematic. And, you know, um, you, you, you really should be doing something, you know, an, an image or something that is not the actual work, not an image of the actual work of the actual Mona Lisa of the actual, uh, Michael, Michelangelo or whatever. Um, so, but regardless, I mean, that, that's a whole other webinar. <laughs> but, but maybe, you know, I think it does relate to the we're seeing a more virtual world of participation, yeah. mm-hmm. certainly in terms of accessing museums. I don't see, I see there being more virtual programming forever. Um, whether the public will stay as interested in it, maybe they will, right? Because you could live anywhere and you could still experience the Met while it was shut down. Like yeah. how exciting. I personally was like too pandemic out to participate online and all that kind of stuff after a while. But um and that is cool, right? Like you could live anywhere in the world and you could have such increased access to these incredible institutions in a way that three years ago you couldn't because you would have, you know, you'd plan your trip to New York and you'd go to the Met, but you couldn't go to the Met if you weren't in New York. Um, so I think we'll see more of that. And, and maybe uh, on the fundraising side too, we will, you know, there was a huge effort to do virtual fundraising, virtual galas, virtual, you know, special events, curator talks, tours, whatever. I I don't know how successful those were, but I can, you know, imagine that now that that infrastructure is set up, um, it won't go away entirely. And so maybe we will see a more digital fundraising environment, both in terms of online events, but also these sort of digital um, assets, you know, that can be monetized. Yeah, for sure, especially as the landscape of fundraising continues to change in general, pandemic aside. Um, but in many of the ways that you've like you've just said, Katie, we've been forced to kind of pivot ourselves. The things that end up being successful or sustaining through the other side of this will probably be things that institutions can look towards um, as fundraising sources, even if it is just an NFT of a copy of a something that people want to buy because it's cool. <laughs> I think there is a you know, maybe a thought summary thought to almost conclude on is that um, there will be tension though, because there just is no way for most institutions to raise enough money to do what they do without going after big, big donations from a handful of people. 
And if at the same time, those institutions are trying to seem detached from reliance on wealthy individuals and um, protected from any criticism about that affiliation. And, um, you know, I, I think the progressivism of museum messaging and the views of the staff are, are do not align perfectly with the reality of how museums do make their money. And until someone comes up with a plan and explains, okay, well, if you lose, you know, if you lose all this high net worth individual fundraising, here's how you're going to get the money. Here's the other way. I think we're just going to be caught in a kind of like in between double speaky, just difficult place where museums want two things um, and the public's demanding that of them too. So I, I, I'm excited to hear how more people, you know, intelligently explain how, how it'll be possible to work under a different model in the system we are in America, the philanthropic system we are, we have now. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Katie. This has been a great chat. And I hope um, the people that were able to participate or that will catch the podcast when it comes out later this week um, will get some get something out of it. A little hope, hopefully, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anywho, guys, go ahead and check out the Art Law Podcast. Like we said, we'll link it in the description box below. And uh, we'll link Katie's information and her co-host's information down there as well. And it will be in the description for the podcast as well. Uh, next art chat, art chat is coming up in November. We'll have a couple of pre-recorded sessions. We'll um, we'll have ready for you guys with some of our um, some of our new help with Meg and Kristen. And uh, I won't delve too deep in that. We'll keep that one a surprise, and you guys will find out a little bit more about it later. Um, but that's all for us this week. Do you have anything else you need to add, John? Uh, nope, nope. Uh, podcast coming out Friday. That's all right. All right, you guys. We'll catch you next one. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining. Please take care and stay safe 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 and stay